this week. Sears pivots to Cyrus as junior dip lender. Toys receives approval on settlement with Fung. Waypoint files in the Southern District of New York. More on all this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Connor Skelding, reporting from our offices in New York City. And I'm Alex Brosman. This week, Director of Credit Research Mark Fisher sits down with Senior Distressed Debt Analyst Kyla Owosu and Senior Reporter Jim Holloway to discuss the offshore energy market with a focus on drillers and recently emerged Pacific Drilling and Sea Drill. It's Sunday, December 2nd. This week, Judge Robert Drain granted the Sears debtors' requests for final approval of their $1.83 billion DIP ABL financing and for interim approval of their $350 million junior DIP financing. At the outset of the hearing, which took place on Tuesday, Sunny Singh of Weil Gachal, counsel for the debtors, announced that Cyrus Capital would be providing the junior dip financing, not Great American Capital Partners, as previously proposed. Andrew Tenzer of Paul Hastings, counsel for Great American, rose briefly and stated that he wanted the record to be made clear that, quote, for whatever reason the debtors have chosen to go with the Cyrus loan, it was not because Cyrus offered better terms. The key terms of the junior dip financing include a 150 basis point reduction in pricing to L plus 1,000 basis points. In addition, adequate protection liens will be limited to the prior obligors and will not extend to new debtors. The final junior dip financing hearing is scheduled for December 20th at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. Also at Tuesday's hearing, Judge Drain granted the discovery motion filed by ESL, which sought Rule 2004 discovery relating to the UCCs and restructuring subcommittees' ongoing expedited investigation of certain pre-petition transactions. At a hearing that lasted less than an hour on Thursday, Judge Keith Phillips approved the settlement agreement between the Taj debtors, True UK Asia Limited, and Fung Retailing Limited, over the objection of Tor Asia Credit Master Fund, holder of approximately $14.5 million of Taj pre-petition notes. Tor had argued that the settlement locked in disparate treatment between ad hoc group members on the one hand and other holders, such as Tor, on the other. Judge Phillips determined that the settlement resolves, quote, complicated multi-jurisdictional litigation between Fung Retailing, the Asia JV, the Taj debtors, and the ad hoc group of Taj note holders, and provides an opportunity for the debtors to complete the sale of the Asia JV and move on to confirming their plan. With respect to a side agreement between the ad hoc note holders and Fung, whereby the group had agreed to sell 6% of its equity in the Asia JV to Fung after the effective date of the plan, which was the basis for Tor's objection, the court determined that the ability of some creditors to transfer their interest in recoveries separate from the proposed settlement should not be considered in the context of the settlement, and as a result, restrictions requiring equitable treatment are not implicated. The debtor satisfied the burden of the best interest tests, and the settlement is fair and equitable and falls above the minimum threshold of reasonableness, the court said. The Taj confirmation hearing, which was set to be heard on Thursday, was adjourned to December 6th. Waypoint Leasing Holdings Limited, a helicopter leasing company based in Ireland, and 142 affiliates filed Chapter 11 petitions on Sunday, November 25th 
in the United States Bankruptcy Court for the Southern District of New York, with plans to use the bankruptcy process to facilitate the sale of Waypoint to a new owner. Todd Walensky, the debtor's general counsel and chief administrative officer, says in his declaration that the debtors have been facing, quote, imminent liquidity constraints as a result of the commodity crash that began in 2014, which crushed demand for helicopter services from oil and gas customers. The company also faces potential defaults under the secured loan facilities. Waypoint ran a robust marketing process that they expect will, quote, culminate shortly in the selection of a bidder for the purchase of substantially all of the debtor's assets, according to the declaration. The debtor's total secured debt is $1.12 billion. The debtor's first day hearing is scheduled for December 6th. On the island of Puerto Rico, the PROMISA Oversight Board filed a second amended plan of adjustment for COFINA, along with a further revised disclosure statement. The second amended plan in DS includes several revisions to the previous versions that were discussed at last week's hearing, during which Judge Laura Taylor Swain indicated that she would approve the COFINA disclosure statement subject to certain additional changes and the inclusion of supplemental information. Also on Monday, the Oversight Board issued a unanimous written consent certifying the submission of the second amended plan. On Tuesday, the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors filed a motion requesting the production under Rule 2004 of documents concerning potential avoidance actions that may be prosecuted by the Title III debtors or by a trustee appointed by the Title III court. The UCC noted that it has urged an investigation into avoidance actions since the onset of the Title III cases and said, quote, time is rapidly running out because the statute of limitations on avoidance actions for three debtors, including the Commonwealth, expires in May 2019. The motion said the PROMISA board commissioned a probe by the independent investigator, quote, did not conduct any factual inquiry into possible avoidance actions whatsoever. The motion will be heard during the next omnibus hearing scheduled for December 19th at 8.30 a.m. Eastern Time in San Juan. The deadline for responses or objections is December 4th at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. On Thursday, the Puerto Rico Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority and Government Development Bank for Puerto Rico announced the consummation of the qualifying modification for GDB under Title VI of the PROMISA. The GDB deal marks the first successful use of the collective action procedures under Title VI of PROMISA and the first Puerto Rico debt restructuring transaction closed under PROMISA. Other top red stories of the week were 1. McDermott's use of purchase price accounting boosts reported EBITDA for covenant compliance. Two, Feralgas CFO, COO voluntarily terminate employment. Three, PG&E, campfire fully contained with acreage fixed at 153,000. This week, Jim Holloway will be passing off his week ahead duties to our co-anchor this week, Alex Brosman. Thanks, Connor, and sorry to all you gym fans out there, but we'll be back for the preview next week. As always, we'll be keeping an eye on the action in court this week. And just when we thought the earnings season was over, here come the off-month companies. First things first, we'll head to Boston on Monday, December 3rd, where the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit will hear oral arguments in a set of important appeals arising out of the Puerto Rico restructuring. Aurelius, Assured Guarantee, and the Union U-Tier are arguing that the members of the PROMISA Oversight Board were appointed in violation of the Appointments Clause under the U.S. Constitution. On Tuesday, December 4th, 
We'll keep our ears open for earnings calls from 9West on Q4-18 results, Cons on Q3-19 results, and Pacific Drilling on Q3-18 results. Aegean Marine, the troubled Greek marine fuel supplier, will also have a second day hearing. Moving to Wednesday, we're back in Boston, where the First Circuit will hear oral arguments in another Puerto Rico appeal. This time, Ambac Assurance Corporation will be up to appeal the dismissal of its lawsuit challenging the fiscal plan for the Puerto Rico Highways and Transportation Authority. Also, the Delaware Chancery Court will consider whether to grant a preliminary injunction on Ascent Capital Group and its operating subsidiary, Monotronics. A group owning 53% of Ascent Capital Group's 4% convertible notes due July 2020 has asked the court to bar Ascent and Monotronics from consummating transactions outlined in their latest transaction support agreement. Thursday, December 6th, will bring us a Q119 earnings call for feral gas and a Q418 earnings call for Havnanian. In an important milestone for Toys R Us, the bankruptcy court will hold a hearing to consider the confirmation of the Taj debtors plan and the Asia JV asset sale. We'll also see a first day hearing for Waypoint Leasing, the Ireland-based helicopter leasing company. To cap off the week on Friday, December 7th, Aegean Marine is up again with a final dip hearing in New York. That's all for me and rest assured everyone, before you go back to reading your paper on the train, our friend Jim Holloway will be back next week, so don't change that dial. Thanks, Alex. As always, we'll be on the lookout for all of that and more. This week, Credit Research Director Mark Fisher, Senior Distressed Debt Analyst Kyle Awusu, and Senior Reporter Jim Holloway discussed the offshore energy market with a focus on drillers and recently emerged Pacific Drilling and Sea Drill. Thank you, Connor. Uh, so I am here today with um, senior uh, financial analyst Kyle Wusu and senior reporter Jim Holloway. Uh, we're going to talk about the offshore energy market. In particular, uh, we're going to focus a lot about on the drilling space, which always is very volatile with, uh, along with the volatility of oil uh, that we've seen. So, uh, Jim, let's just jump right into it, actually. If you could tell us what's been going on uh, in, in the market, uh, how's the, uh, the environment been, and how the oil price has affected, um, has affected things. Well, thanks, Mark. Uh, well, as we all know, the downturn was brutal for offshore. Um, a general rule of thumb is that the industry needs $65 Brent to make it work. And when you don't have that, which we didn't for, um, you know, three to four years, uh, companies with cap structures that require $100 oil and half a million dollar in day rate just aren't sustainable. Um, the industry knew what it had to do, though, which was shrink the size of the fleet. And it's made a lot of progress in that area. It's been a good deal of scrapping and retirement and a lot of uh, new build deliveries deferred. According to data that I, Evercore ISI has assembled, retirements have exceeded new build deliveries over each of the last three years. And there's also been a good deal of consolidation. Insco bought Atwood and recently bought Rowan. Transocean, which bought Songa offshore, bought Ocean Rig. And Board Drilling has been going after what looks to be every jackup in sight. Uh, overall, right now, the global floater fleet looks to be around 265 units compared to nearly 350 at the end of 2014. 
There's also been a pickup in demand. Um, a lot of subsea tieback sort of work with some more fixed facility and floater projects towards the end of the year. Overall, according to Rystad Energy, there's about 100 offshore projects worth about $100 billion to be sanctioned this year. And they also think there could be 100 new, prob 100 new projects next year. So between those two factors, we're definitely seeing a pickup in utilization. Overall floater utilization is at 60%, which is the highest in two and a half years. Ultra deep water utilization is at 61%, which is also the highest in over two years. The Gulf of Mexico has marketed utilization at 85%, which as Evercore notes, is the level at which a lot of people say day rates start to improve. But then there's the oil price, and the market hates uncertainty worse than anything. Just a few months ago, people were talking about when Brent would hit 100. And Thursday morning, we saw WTI touch below 50 and Brent below 60. So this is clouding the Magic 8 ball a good deal, and no one really likes it. So there's definitely an element of uncertainty now, although the expectation is we'll hopefully have a recovery of some sort and the stabilization in prices. Where we have seen the unpredictability show up is in the Fred Olson case. A key component of Fred Olson's restructuring proposal was the sale of a 2014 drill ship, the Bullet Dolphin, for $340 million. And that was at the upper end of the $300 million to $350 million range that developed as consensus going into the announced deal. However, the price of crude fell 14% since early November when Fred announced a potential buyer of the bullet. And on November 27th, they said the potential buyer withdrew from the sales process because of the change in oil and equity prices, coupled with the uncertainty around the restructuring and sales process. So we are seeing a bit of that. Great, thanks. And you know, when we look at specific uh, contracts, how has uh, that uh, activity been? Uh, you know, talk to us about uh, any recent uh, contract wins, field activity, uh, and and where we think uh, service pricing is going here. Yeah, looking at um, contract tables, a lot of the work is still for relatively short duration jobs. We're not seeing a lot of the four and five year contracts we saw back in the boom years. Not at this point anyway. You are seeing a pickup in activity across all geographies, probably led by the U.S. and Norway. Um, day rates, though, for the floaters, most are private, but published rates and market color suggest it's still scraping along the bottom, right around OPEX or around 150 to 160 a day. Harsh water rigs are commanding day rates rates of about uh, 292,000 to 230,000 a day. So that remains a bright spot. Thanks for that, Jim. Um, that, that was really helpful. So now let's go into the, the companies and I want to bring in a couple of recent companies that we followed here very actively at Reorg, Sea uh, Drill is one and uh, Pacific Drilling is another. Two companies that both started their bankruptcy process uh, a year ago, about a year ago, and uh, have both emerged uh, this year. And I think the reason why I wanted to focus on these companies is because I think you get a lot of you get a lot out of how uh, these processes went, both pre-petition, during bankruptcy, and then how results have been post-petition. Uh, you know, what's interesting with this space, you've, you've pretty much seen an entire cycle uh, over just the last year with um, changing sentiment, changing prices. Uh, you know, this is basically something for everyone um, here over over what we've seen in this um, in this recent uh, commodity cycle. So, um, you know, with that with that in mind about how 
sentiment has changed, uh, you know, throughout about who thinks they deserve what in a restructuring and what people's uh, expectations on valuation are. Kyle, um, you know, if you could talk to us about um, C-Drill, uh, you know, to, to start to talk specifically about people's expectations on valuation, C-Drill is interesting because you had a lot of equity involvement, uh, right? Um, even as uh, bonds were, were selling off just before the company filed for bankruptcy, right? Yeah, definitely. So even as, as you mentioned, even as the bonds um, were selling off going into bankruptcy, uh, you had um, Fredrickson, which is Cedral's owner, um, and a consortium of investors uh, put in new money um, in order to uh, participate in the equity with the anticipation um, that, you know, as, as the offshore market recovered, um, even though the company would be emerging with, um, you know, leverage in the, the double digits, um, the, the equity would eventually be in the money um, as the offshore market picked up. Um, and actually, you know, going um, closer to emergence, you saw a few funds uh, buy into shipyard claims um, with the expectation that those claims could would be equitized. And again, um, you'd be able to to participate uh, in the upside. Um, and there was a lot of grappling um, back and forth throughout that process as existing note holders wanted to be able to invest on the same terms um, as Fred. And, and his consortium, and so, you know, similar with uh, Pacific Drilling, you, you you saw a lot of various parties jostling um, over the ability to really own the equity and and participate in the in in the upside of of the restructuring here, um, and you know, as you pointed out. Uh, the sentiment um, has changed relatively quickly, um, you know. But nevertheless, uh, it was interesting. I mean, on, on Cedral's call, um, even with this sentiment change, you still had people asking questions about um, consolidation uh, and specifically whether or not Cedril would participate. Um, and management noted that. You know, Cedril is not the type of company that has sat on its hands in the past, and that if the, if a deal if a good deal comes its way, um, that it will participate, um, but that it can afford to be choosy. Um, so yeah, that that was that was an interesting takeaway on that call. But nevertheless, um, both Cedril um, and the the Cedril partners calls. Uh, one theme that was consistent was that um, while the offshore market is improving, there there is definitely a premium on um, the financial flexibility that uh, is afforded by having uh, cash on the balance sheet. So, you know, so, sort of a return to animal spirits, but but still very cautious. Yeah, but you did say that they can be choosy. So we'll see uh, how choosy they are and how <laughs> conservative they are with that cash. But um, so, so how has, you know, it's been out for a little bit now. So how have uh, results been, uh, particularly re relative to plan? Yeah, so um, at the end of the third quarter, Cedril reported um, $2.1 billion of total cash. That cash figure includes $560 billion of, re of restricted cash. Um, the company pulled, put out a December 2017 updated business plan, um, and that plan um, showed um, consolidated cash at the end of 2018 um, at around 1.4 billion so um, you know definitely uh, on track there with with the cash figure um, 
And interestingly, there have been uh, a couple of uh, debt repurchases um, since the company has emerged. Um, and so, and management was very vocal on the call about their their desire to pay down um, the new secured note that Cedril issued as part of its plan. Um, and so, you're seeing um, as as the company has emerged um, a real uh, priority uh, when it comes to paying down the new secured note, and it'll be interesting to see how management balances that priority with uh, the the desire should a good deal appear to participate in uh, M and A. Great, and uh, you know, let me move on to. Pacific drilling, because like you know, like you said, there's a lot of similarities in in that business and how uh, the the plan went. In particular, what what I found interesting was the, the, the all the parties, you know, I guess, like Sea Drill, that wanted to stay involved um, in this case or wanted a piece of the um, of the company um, pre and post uh, post petition. So. The I'll describe the plan itself. Um, you know, the company ha- uh, did emerge recently, but the plan itself, you could actually say, was almost a little bit um, uh, upside down uh, because the creditors here, uh, according to the disclosure statement, um, according to the recovery set out by by the debtors um, and their plan value, they were to recover, bondholders were to recover uh, between 43 and uh, 54% of their claim, yet uh, the large equity holder, Quantum Pacific, uh, who was a large equity holder uh, pre-petition of the old equity, uh, they uh, were able to participate in the plan and um, and, and actually contribute to a private placement that was done at a almost 47% discount to uh, to plan equity value. So uh, should the, the the company reach that plan equity value, that's you know quite a quite a windfall for um, for an equity holder here, where creditors, uh, according to plan value, were not uh, you know set to receive par. So I think it helps to uh, walk through the. Um, uh, the history here of negotiations, because I think it tells you, um, you know, a nice story about where people thought, um, where where stakeholders thought recovery should be, or what this company was worth. Um, you know, going back to the first day papers in um, in the company's declaration, um, Pacific Drilling uh, talked about. Uh, pretty divergent views between uh, the bondholders and an equity particular, uh, Quantum Pacific, but also management. Uh, they said pre-petition, again, this is a year ago, uh, pre-petition, there were a bunch of back and forth proposals. The company wanted to, as a restructuring proposal, wanted to grant 10% of new equity to the existing, the old equity, uh, old pro, uh, pre-petition equity, plus um uh, warrants for an additional 10% of the new equity. Of course, bondholders uh, did not want to give up uh, that much, and uh, they only offered two and three quarter uh, percent of the equity through uh, through warrants. Uh, company then filed, and this back and forth uh, continued. In January, the ad hoc group uh, requested that the court appoint a mediator, uh, which was also, this is, that was January this year. Uh, the mediator was also requested by the secured credit facility agent. Uh, in February, the court uh, actually said, um, you know, during the mediation hearing, uh, the court said that uh, disputes were not yet actually ripe um, 
for um, uh, for mediation. Uh, however, Judge Wiles did demand more, quote, thorough discussions before continuing the hearing, which he did continue uh, to a month later. Uh, and then in between or before that continuation on March 6th, the debtors disclosed an offer of mediation terms they made to the parties, and uh, former Judge James Peck was appointed mediator. Uh, fast forward to the summer on July 26th, the debtors decided to proceed with the ad hoc group plan, uh, but the uh, and I'm gonna um, you know just just go right with what um, the debtors' counsel said. Um, the debtors said, "quote uh, There is the counsel said there is a, a wrinkle um, because the independent directors believe that Quantum Pacific's proposal, which again you know is the equity holder, is also quote very attractive." Uh, and the debtors wanted to modify their exclusivity extension request to permit, even though they had um, said that they wanted to go with the ad hoc plan, they wanted to permit Quantum Pacific to file and prosecute its own plan at the, at the same time. Um, so in response to that, though, um, Judge Wilde said, I quote, uh, and this is a good quote, I really want to see exactly what the competing pro proposals are and have a better sense of why this makes sense and how this won't be confusing for holders in classes entitled to vote on the plans before, quote, completely committing uh, to permitting the dueling plan track to proceed. Uh, and then he had later uh, directed the parties back to mediation uh, and this is at a later hearing, and said that the debtor's apparent decision to pursue both plans simultaneously, quote, confuses me to death and would be the, quote, absolute worst path forward. Uh, so, you know, after, after those couple of comments, um, the debtors uh, went along with the ad hoc group plan. But interestingly enough, um, Quanta Pacific, in a, a next iteration of that plan, was actually allowed to participate. Uh, and then you had the plan that, that exists um, today in which uh, they would partially fund exit notes and share in the private placement. Um, so... I, maybe it's just one party, um, but uh, you know certainly there was um, a desire for um, equity to stay involved um, in this case as well. Just like uh, just like C drill, and um, it also seemed like the company um, sort of uh, liked that um, equity involvement uh, too, or at least the Quantum Pacific's uh, involvement. Yes, definitely. Wow, that is that is quite the story. Um, so, so how have the numbers been uh, now that the company has emerged? You know, they they've been mixed. Um, you know, I'll, I'll take you to before uh, the company emerged um, throughout uh, bankruptcy. The during their monthly opera for in their monthly operating reports, uh, many of those months uh, they did report cash outflows. Uh, the company reported that second quarter um, continued to file uh, SEC filings throughout the bankruptcy. And in its second quarter, and to June 30th, they reported negative two and a half million of EBITDA. Uh, though, actually, that was an improvement from the negative 17.6 million in EBITDA reported in the, um, in the year ago, uh, second quarter. Uh, and then we'll, we'll hear more uh, from them because they're going to report uh, on Monday, um, their uh, their third quarter uh, results. Um, in terms of how the business, though, uh, you know, could look 
going forward. Uh, in that second quarter, um, they said that uh, Patronus recently exercised its option to con- uh, contract for the debtors uh, Pacific Santa Ana uh, for an additional year of work, uh, which, commen- which will commence in middle of 2019. The uh, company also stated that it received a letter of intent from Inai for Pacific Bora to work in Nigeria and uh, two letters of award for drilling services in the Gulf of Mexico for uh, a couple other um, of their other drill ships. And, um, you know, at the this is back from, you know, in a disclosure statement, the company had talked about um, one of these um, uh, awards and said that uh, the, the for the Gulf of Mexico, it would be for two years um, at a day rate of one hundred and sixty thousand uh, dollars a day. Um, the disclosure statement uh, provided um, some um, uh, projections going forward with a pretty big ramp up uh, in results. EBITDA, uh, cash EBITDA, according to the disclosure statement, would um, go from $24 million in 2019, rising to uh, all the way to $516 million in 2026, um, with uh, a little gradual improvement in 2020, and then uh, results, um, you know, more like a hockey stick type of recovery um, beginning in uh, 2021. And um, cash flow to, to follow. Interesting enough, um, the, the projections actually um, have the company burning cash uh, in 2019 and 2020, uh, according to the disclosure statement. So they are winning. Um, you know, they have announced winning contracts, um, day rates, um, you know, at levels it's, it's been, at levels we've seen in the markets, uh, maybe even a slight uh, uptick. And what I always find interesting is that um, they're for contracts a little further out, uh, you know, beginning for next year. So people are, uh, it, I guess it shows that customers are looking to the future and, and planning ahead for, uh, you know, for some additional work. And it looks like Pacific Drilling is, is winning uh, some of that. Uh, so that's an overview, I and mean, we'll hear more about what uh, Pacific Drilling has to say. We'll hear, uh, of course, more from from the market. Um, I appreciate everyone's uh, you know time here, Jim. Thank you for uh, for that overview of the market, Kyle. Uh, you know, thank you very much uh, for your comments on Sea Drill, and uh, Connor. Back to you. Thanks, Mark. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg podcasts on the media page. If you're not a subscriber, you can find them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Connor Skelding, and this has been The Week in Reorg.